In previous sessions, we discussed the fact that humility means understanding that I was granted talents, I was granted abilities, all of it is talent on loan from God. Recognizing my strengths, recognizing my abilities, and yet being humble requires a very clear cognition, a very clear recognition that I am not the one who created it, I'm not the one who granted it, these are gifts to me from Hashem. In the last session we pointed out that the pivot to all of Avodos Hashem, our entire relationship with Hashem, and our entire service to Hashem is based on this single cognition that I am a servant and Hashem is my master. The midah of adnanus, of arrogance, <clears throat> defies all of the relationship to Hashem. The minute I have a sense of mastery, of importance, of <clears throat> pompous self-importance within my heart, I am breaking that relationship because there's a master and there's a servant. Certain relationships are mutually dependent. To be a boss, you have to have an employee. To be a husband, you have to have a wife. To be a servant, you have to have a master. And the feeling of mastery within me is the antithesis of all of Odus Hashem. And therefore, to be an Ebed Hashem, a person has to work on humility. In this session, we're going to focus on the fact that humility is also the pivot point of all good character traits, of all Midas Tovos. And to do that, let's begin with an interesting Chazal. Gemara Shabbos tells us that a person should always be as humble as Hillel. And don't be one who's makbid, don't be one who's very strong, <coughs> tough like Shammai. And then the Gemara gives us an example of the humility of Hillel. There were two men, the Gemara explained to us, who took a bet. They bet 400 zoos, which is a fortune of money, whether one of them could get Hillel to be angry, to lose his temper. One man said, I'll take the bet, I'll do it. So they wagered 400 zoos, a fortune of money, and this man set out as his goal to make Hillel angry. The Gemara tells us what happened. One Arab Shabbos, it was late towards getting closer to Shabbos, he waited until Hillel was in the bathhouse, and he calls out, Mikan Hillel, Mikan Hillel, is there someone here named Hillel? Is there a Hillel fellow here? Hillel gets dressed, comes out, and says, Yes, sir, what can I do for you? Oh, you're Hillel? I have a very, very important question to ask you. Shal b'ni shal, ask my son, what's the question? And my question is, why is it that the heads of the Babylonians are flat? Clearly a klatskasha. Hillel said, Sha'ila Gadola Sha'alta, my son, you've asked a very, very important question. The answer is that midwives are not very skilled. When the babies come out, they'll sometimes press against the head, and that's why they're flat headed. The man left strike one. He did not succeed in getting Hillel angry. He waited a little bit longer, <clears throat> comes back to the bathhouse and says, Mikan Hillel, is there somebody named Hillel, a Hillel person here? Again, Hillel comes out, <clears throat> gets dressed and says, Yes, what can I do for you? I have a question to ask. Shal b'ni shal, ask my son, ask, what's your question? <clears throat> my question is, why are the eyes of the Orientals slanted? Shela gadola shal a wonderful question you've asked my son. The answer is because they live amongst places where the sand blows, and their eyes are formed that way, keeping the sand out of their eyes. Strike two, the man did not succeed in getting Hill angry. <clears throat> the man doesn't give up. He waits a little while longer, comes back and says, 
Meet Khan Hillel. Is there a man called Hillel? A Hillel fellow around here? Again, Hillel comes out, gets dressed, and says, Yes, my son, what can I do for you? I have a question to ask. Shal b'ni shal. Ask my son, what's the question? My question is, why is it that the feet of the Africans are very wide? Shayla Gadola Shaltamani, you asked a wonderful question, my son. The answer is because they live amongst the marshlands, and when their feet are wider, it gives them greater stability. At which point does man realize, strike three, and he says as follows, Shayla's Harbe Yeshli Lishol. I have many questions to ask, but I'm afraid you're going to get angry with me. Hillel says, no, 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 please, please, my son. <clears throat> Hillel sits down, wraps himself further up and says, please, any question that you have to ask, please go ahead and ask. The man turns to Hillel and says, Atahu Hillel, Shekornas on Nasi Yisrael, are you the man Hillel that they call a Nasi Yisrael? Hillel says, yes, I am. Im lo yirbu Yisrael, there should be no more like you in Yisrael. Hillel says, why, my son, why? Why? Because of you, I lost 400 zoos. I made a bet and I lost. Says Hillel, Be careful with what you say. It's worthy to have a Hillel. It's worthy for Hillel to lose, for you to lose 400 zoos and another 400 zoos on top of that and for Hillel not to get angry. And that's Gemara's explanation. Now, before we ask what I consider the obvious question on this Gemara, Let's analyze a little bit what's going on. The Marshal explains that, number one, we're dealing with a fortune of money. <clears throat> 400 zoos is two years' worth of support, and these men <clears throat> were very, very calculated. And when that man took him up on the bet, he was very, very careful in doing everything he could to get Hillel to get angry. And he was a wise student of human nature. Watch what he did. Number one, he waited till Erev Shabbos. People are always very busy, very torrid, and it's a time of extreme stress. And in addition, he waited until Hill was bathing to particularly bother him. But not just that, he comes to the bathhouse and says, Is there a man called there? Is there a Hill guy around here? Hill was Nasi Yisrael. He was the center address of all issues of the Jewish nation. Certainly famous, certainly known to all. This was Hillel Hanossi. Is there a Hillel guy around here? You don't even know my name? <clears throat> Not just that. He makes Hillel, the great Hillel, walk out to him. He doesn't come to him. Makes Hillel walk out to him. <clears throat> but not just that. I have a very important question to ask. What's a very important question? <clears throat> Why the Babylonian's head flat? Why oriental eyes are slanted? Clear klutzkashes. But then the final hammer blow. After he strikes out on three of those questions... He says to Hillel, I have many, many questions to ask, but I'm afraid to ask because I'm afraid I, I might get you angry. Explains the Mashar, that was the final blow. Why? Didn't I show you already how calm I am? <clears throat> Didn't I show you how much patience I have? You think you're going to get me angry? Me, the great Hillel? And that was the final hammer blow, at which point Hillel passed that test as well. And the man said, there shouldn't be any more like you. Why? Because I lost 400 zoos. Says Hillel, it's worthy for, Hillel, for you to lose 400 zoos and another 400 zoos and not let Hillel lose his temper. Okay, now this is a very interesting chazal and a wonderful display, but the problem with this Gemara is the Gemara labels it incorrectly. The Gemara says a man should always be as humble as Hillel. Now this is a classic example of a man without a temper. If you wanted to teach me anger management, 
I would pick this Gemara as a classic example. You should always be as even-tempered as Hillel. You should never lose your cool as Hillel. But that's not what the Gemara says. The Gemara says a person should always be as humble as Hillel. What does this have to do with humility? This has to do with anger management. And to answer this question, I think we need to better understand this Mida called humility and see, in fact, what this Gemara really means. As we discussed in previous sessions, there is a mitzvah assay to work on one's midos, a positive mitzvah to improve my midos. That means to be more generous, more kindly, more giving, to work on the full gamut of my midos. The Rishonim explained to us that the pivot of all midos is humility. And humility is the quickest way not just to work on that area alone, but to work on all of the midos as well. And let's see why. Mesil Sharm again explains to us that humility is an inner condition. It's a sense of humility that wells within my heart, and it's the exact opposite of arrogance. So let's go back to review what arrogance is. Arrogance is a sense within me that I'm chashuv and I'm worthy of praise. I'm a very mighty, weighty, important person, worthy of being treated differently, worthy of being lorded upon. I am great, I am big, I am very, very important and worthy of praise. The opposite of that is humility, recognizing that praise and honor are not due to me. Surely not to be lorded over anyone else. I'm just a plain, regular person. I walk this earth. I didn't make myself. I didn't make the world. More than anything, recognizing that my accomplishments may be great. I may do various things. I may even done great things, but that doesn't mean I'm worthy of praise. Everything that I've done has been granted to me, gifted to me. The very world I live in, the hands that I move, the brain that I have given the chance to operate, I'm Joe the crane operator. The crane might be mighty. It might do tremendous things, but I'm the little guy inside who moves the levers and the crane does great things. As a result, there's no praise and no honor due to me. And surely, not to be lorded over anyone else, I'm just a regular person. But you see, all of this are perceptions of I. And if you'd like to understand the Mida of humility, I find an easy way to do it is to imagine a small circle called I. There's a circle called I, and that circle could either be very small or bigger or bigger or bigger still. Now imagine we were to give it numbers. So if we were to take Paro, Nebuchadnezzar, these type of people, they had a circle the size of a hundred. Their sense of self, their sense of who they are, is huge, this big, big, big circle. As a person becomes more humble, that circle becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until a real tzaddik, it's a very, very small circle. The way one changes that sense of self is primarily based on self-talk. What happens is the way you talk to yourself shapes that circle. So the more that I say to myself, you know, I'm a pretty important person. You know, I'm very smart. I'm pretty talented. You know, I'm very impressive. The more my self-talk tends to that side, the more that circle grows, the more I do the opposite, the smaller that circle becomes. Now, each human being has a set point. We all begin at a certain point. One person might have begun at 20, another at 30, another at 40. The measure of the person isn't where you're at, 
it's where you began and where you moved yourself to. So if a person began at a 20 and he started self-talking himself to being bigger and bigger and bigger, he might be at a 40. Another person might have started at a 40 and might have moved himself down to a 30. The set point is your beginning point. Where you end up is the mark of your growth. Now, what's interesting to note is what happens as that circle of self begins expanding. How do you relate to others? How do you feel about others? And how do you feel about yourself? So to share with you what I mean, let me share with you an interesting study. A professor of psychology presented to his students the following interesting example. He asked them to write on a card <clears throat> 10 people that they, he know, they know very well. Write the initials of 10 people that they're close to, that they know very well, on the left side of the card. They wrote the <clears throat> initials of the 10 people. Then he asked them on the right side of the card to write whether these individuals are self-centered or other-centered. On a scale of 1 to 10, are they self-centered or other-centered? Meaning, if they're <clears throat> totally self-centered, it'd be a 1. If they're other-centered, it'd be a 10. Write on a scale of 1 to 10 how self-centered or other-centered these people are. Then he asked them on the back of the card to write the following. These people, are they happy or not happy? Meaning right next to the number of whether they're self-centered or other-centered, write down whether they're happy or not happy. And here's what he found. A tremendous correlation between people who are self-centered and unhappy, and people who are other-centered and are happy. Now, if you think about that, that's a little strange. Because imagine for a minute that I'm completely, utterly self-centered. That means I am the center of the world. All I care about is me. All I'm focused on is me. I count. I matter. I am it. Clearly, I should be the happiest person in the world. Why? Because all I focus on is me. All I care about is me, and all I'm directed to is my happiness. Yet, ironically, the most self-centered people seem to be the most unhappy. But if you think about it, really it should be the opposite. If we have an other-centered person, an other-centered person means he cares about other people. He puts himself last. He's focused on other... Why should he be happy? He should be miserable. I'm the guy who focuses on everyone else. I'm the last one. I should be the most miserable... Yet the other-centered people were the most happy. And let's ask that as a question. Why is that? So if we study this meter called arrogance, I think we'll quickly understand why it is. <clears throat> let's imagine that I started at a 20. Sort of hum- humble-ish as a person. And then as I grew up, I found success. Let's say I was very good in learning, maybe very good in basketball. Maybe I was talented in other areas. Maybe my parents were very rich. And I had a lot of self-inflation. You know, I'm a pretty impressive guy. And look how smart I am. Look how talented. And as I grew older and older, my circle of self grew from a 20 to a 30 to a 40 to a 50. Maybe it's even a 70 now. Now, here's a very interesting reality. Do you ever notice that the larger the sense of self is, the more attention that I need? The more I think of myself the more I need other people to pay attention to me. Now, if you think about it, that's rather perverse. Why? Because if I'm arrogant, I'm chashuv. I'm important, and everyone else isn't. That's the nature of arrogance. 
the bigger I am, the smaller you are. So if that's true, shouldn't the arrogant guy be the one who's least concerned with what people think about him? Yet it's the reverse. The more arrogant a person is, the more he needs your attention, the more he needs the limelight, the more he needs your approval. Yet if I'm arrogant, I'm choshev, I'm important, and you're not. What do I care about you? Why do I need you? And the answer is that all of arrogance is delusional. Because within me there's a voice that says, cut it out. Who are you fooling? What do you mean, who am I fooling? I'm choshev, I'm important. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, I am. Yes, I am. No, I'm not. And there's an inner tension. There's a constant contradiction within me. And the more I inflate, the more I recognize that it's false, and the more I have to puff and puff and puff and blow that circle up to keep it where it is. And the reason why the more arrogant I am, the more I need your approval, is because I know within me that it's fake, it's false, and it's not true. It's delusional. And the more arrogant I am, the more attention I need, the more I need people to focus on me. But there's another interesting reality. The bigger my sense of self gets, the more self-absorbed I become. You see, imagine my circle grows to 50, 60, 70. It's not just that I'm important and everyone else isn't. I can't even notice anyone else. I don't even see anyone else. I can't see their pain. I can't see their needs. It's not that I don't even care. I don't even notice it. Now, why is that? Because, again, what happens is, as I inflate and inflate, get bigger and bigger, I get filled with this constant need to bolster myself up. I have this constant obsession of keeping the great eye inflated. And I'm so focused on me that I can't see anyone else. I'm in this inner conflict, and all of my emotional bandwidth is taken up by keeping myself inflated. I can't see you because I'm fighting the demons in my mind. And this is the ultimate irony. The person with the damaged self-esteem and the person with the, with the inflated self-esteem suffer from the exact same reality. <clears throat> they're each living in constant conflict. They're each miserable <clears throat> because they're trying to deal with a sense of self that doesn't match reality and that doesn't allow them any peace. If a person has a damaged self, sense of self, who am I? What am I? I'm nobody. I'm not, I'm, I'm not adequate. I'm not good enough. Uh, and I constantly look at other people and see them as much better than me. I constantly see people who are so successful and I'm not. And I'm constantly bombarded and badgered by the sense that I'm not good enough. But that same reality afflicts the person with the inflated sense of self. I'm great. I'm powerful. I'm mighty. I'm, I'm tremendous. But the problem is I know I'm not. And I'm huffing and puffing, and all day long I need to bolster that, I need to keep that up, and I'm fighting this tremendous battle, and ironically I am as unhappy as the person with a damaged sense of self. But this surfaces in a very interesting way when I deal with other people. The bigger I am, the more pompous, the more self-inflated I am, the more jealous I am of you. Why? Because the minute you have anything, anything of value, anything of stature, I'm deserving of that. I should have that. I should have the bigger house. I should have the bigger car. I should have the greater position. I should have the honor. And no matter what it is, I need it. I should have it. 
and invariably I'm going to be jealous. You see, the more arrogant I am, the more I need, the more I deserve, the more I should have, and the more jealous I am of everyone around me who has anything. And as a result, the more miserable I am. But there's another interesting manifestation of arrogance. I was once <coughs> discussing a certain individual with Rabbi Dviritz, Rishiv of Rochester, and I <coughs> said to him, you know, I think this person's a Balgaiva. Rabbi Dviritz says he's not. I said, I'm telling you, I know him very well. <coughs> I think he's a Balgaiva. Rabbi Dviritz said, tell me, <coughs> how often does he get into fights with people? I said, not that often. Rabbi Dviritz said, he, obviously he's not a Balgaiva. Why? Because if a person is arrogant, he can't help but get into fights all the time with people. And I'd like to share with you why that's true. You see, I am very, very important, very, very mighty, very, very weighty. And I can't help but notice that no one treats me with the respect due to a person of my importance, my stature, and my greatness. People insult me all the time. They don't treat me with the honor due to me. They're not acting in accordance to my greatness. Don't they know who I am? And don't they recognize how important I am? Don't they see me this way? But they don't. And they treat me with dishonor and tremendous, tremendous disrespect all the time. But even worse, what happens when I become arrogant is I don't make mistakes. A man of my stature, a man of my importance isn't wrong. I just don't make mistakes. I don't allow myself to make mistakes. Now here's the problem. I do. And (laughs) invariably there are going to be things I don't know, errors that I make in judgment or decisions, And what happens when you prove it to me, when you show me undeniably, incontrovertibly, irrefutably that I was wrong? I can't accept that. Because the great me doesn't make mistakes. The great me is never wrong. And I walk around with what I call a sunburn on my ego. You see, when you get a sunburn... If you're in the sun too long, then anything that touches your skin, ow, ow, ooh, ow, you can't wear clothes, you can't, it just, it's very painful. And when your ego gets inflated, and it gets to a 70, when it gets to an 80, I can't help but get bruised all the time. People disrespect me, people don't treat me with the right accord, and worse than anything, there are times when it's clear and it's obvious that I'm wrong, but the great me can't be wrong. I, I'm, I'm greater than great, I'm bigger than big, I'm smarter than smart, and yet I'm wrong. And the reason why a Balgaiva is always going to get into fights with people all the time is because I am very, very uncomfortable with my being wrong. But there's one more step of being an arrogant person that's very, very interesting. The Ramban explains to us that Hashem doesn't get angry. Number one, the concept of anger doesn't apply to Hashem. But number two, more than that, why should Hashem get angry? You see, anger is a frustration from a lack of control. Hashem controls everything. There's nothing in creation that could possibly violate the will of Hashem, and therefore there's no reason for Hashem to get angry. If Hashem ever didn't want something to happen, Hashem would not will it to be. Therefore Hashem won't get angry. A, philosophically it doesn't happen, and B, there's no reason for it. And this is the underlying point. You see, anger is caused by a frustration you violated my will. I willed it to be this, and you did the opposite. If you ever try to tell your children to do something and they don't do it, you feel frustrated. But why? Because I said you should, and you didn't. 
And you see, the arrogant person can't help but be constantly assailed. He can't help but be assailed by this constant frustration. I willed it to be X, and people don't listen. People don't obey. People don't listen to my wisdom. People don't appreciate me. And all day long, he's suffering in misery. But there's one more consequence of that inflated sense of self. The arrogant person cannot enjoy this world. And I'll explain to you why. There's a principle called the contrast principle. This principle basically states that we appreciate things in contrast to what we expect, in contrast to what we are accustomed to. So I'll give you an example of it. Imagine that there are three pails of water. On the right side is a cold pail of water. On the left side is a very hot pail of water. And in the middle is a lukewarm pail of water. And imagine I ask you to put your two hands in the outer pails for a minute. So one of your hand, one of your hands is in a very hot pail of water, other hand is in a very cold pail of water, and after a minute I ask you to take your hands out and put them both into the lukewarm pail. What's amazing is the hand that was in the hot water is going to feel the lukewarm water as freezing cold, and the hand that was in the cold water is going to feel the lukewarm water as if it's boiling hot. Now, you know the water that both your hands are in is lukewarm. It's the same temperature, yet to the hand that's coming from the cold, it'll feel hot. From the hand that's coming from the hot, it'll feel cold, because it's the contrast of where you're coming from that allows you to feel what you feel. Most of our experiences are based on contrast. I'll explain to you what I mean. When I was a young man, I was a Rebbe in Rochester, Yeshiva, and we were newly married, two little kids along the way, and my parents said to me, why don't you buy a home? Now, in Rochester, New York, the homes cost maybe a tenth of what they cost in New York City, so I bought a home. And there I was, a guy who had not long ago been in the dorm, now I owned my own home, and I was richer than rich. I can't describe the feeling when I went onto my lawn that I owned of my house, I felt phenomenally wealthy. If you were to offer me today a house anywhere, I don't think I could match that sense. I think it would take an island in the South Pacific. Because coming from a dorm as a single guy, and a couple of years later you own your own home, the contrast was so dramatic that I was richer than rich. And this is one of the problems with arrogance. You see, I'm a very, very important guy. Very big. Very, very chashuv. And whatever you offer me really isn't enough. You know, a Tesla, I don't know, it's not quite enough. And, you know, first-class seats, that's not good enough. Private jet isn't good enough. And what very quickly happens is that the arrogant person cannot enjoy anything in this world. Whatever you bring him isn't good enough. Whatever you show him is not enough. The fancy home, the fancy car, the beautiful wife, for a guy like me, it's never enough. And one of the manifestations of the bigger that ego becomes is the less you can enjoy this world. The Balgaiva has a miserable time in this world. He's suffering all day, every day. Number one, no one treats me with the honor that's due to me. And number two, I'm constantly, constantly being insulted. And more than that, I'm always jealous. I need this and I should have that. And anything that I do have is not enough for me. And I'm living in a state of constant misery, self-inflating, trying to keep that ego inflated, 
and knowing that it's false and constantly being assaulted by reality and any mistake that I make is very, very painful. Anything in this world I can't enjoy and I find myself very, very quickly in a very, very unhappy state. But there's one more consequence to ego that is maybe even more costly. And that is arrogance leads to anger. But why is that? If you measure anger, it can be measured in terms of frequency, intensity, and duration. Frequency means how frequently you get angry. Intensity means how intensely angry do you get. Duration means how long does that anger last. The minute a person has arrogance in their heart, is going to increase the amount of anger that they experience on a regular basis. And I'd like to explain to you why. Most young women have this experience somewhere during the first two years in a marriage when they're working with, walking with a husband, and something like this occurs. From across the street, she hears a guy call out, Hey, you! You're fat and ugly, and your mother dresses you funny. And her husband turns to the guy, walks across the street, and she knows there's going to be a fist fight. Her husband walks right over to the guy and hugs him. Hey, buddy, how you doing? So those words, hey, you're ugly, and your mother dresses you funny, are just like uh, high school buddy talk. And this is a guy from the old country. Okay. But let's carefully analyze what happens there. I'm walking down the street, and I hear somebody from across the way call out, Hey, you're ugly, and your mother dresses you funny. I turn, and in a nanosecond, I process a tremendous amount of information, context, who said it, what was said, what was meant, and what is this that I'm now experiencing. But you see, in that nanosecond, that's when I interpret everything. Who said it? What does it mean? What's the setting? In that very, very small sliver of a second, I'm interpreting what he said, whether it's an insult or it's a buddy from the old days, and does it matter or does it not? But watch what happens. Imagine that I'm arrogant, and I'm puffing up that ego, and it's a 70, it's an 80. Number one, I'm in a sense of constant conflict, because I'm constantly needing to puff it up, and I'm constantly in that state of having to keep it inflated. Number two, I'm always being insulted by everyone else. No one treats me with the honor due. And as a result, I have a sunburn on my ego. And even worse, my will is always being violated. I can't help but get angry on a regular, ongoing basis. Why? Ow, 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 stop that, stop, ow, 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 stop, ow, ow, ow. All day long, people are insulting me, people are violating my will, no one treats me with the honor due, and I'm a miserable cretin. And if you'd like to understand anger, if you have a person with a very strong sense of arrogance, it's invariable that they will have a very hard time with anger. Let me share with you the contrast. The story told Moshe Feinstein in the 1980s was walking on Grand Avenue, Lower East Side. And all of a sudden a man finds himself standing next to the girl door. Moshe walks over to him and says, Sir, how can I help you? And the man didn't know what to do. The girl door says, How can I... It took the man a moment or two to process what had just happened. And this man had called out to his 13-year-old son across the way, Moshe, come here. Moshe, come here. The Galador of Moshe Feinstein heard a Jew call. He crossed the street and said, yes, how can I help you? Now, I want you to understand what that means. You see, Moshe Feinstein was a very humble man. 
Okay, it's not so covidic. He calls me to call. All right, well, listen, a Jew needs help. Let me go help. <clears throat> Who am I anyway? Am I so important? Am I so chashuv? And he goes across the street and he says, how could I help you? But that's a very humble man. <clears throat> Would you like to understand the answer to Hillel? Every one of these attempts were an attempt to see the humility of Hillel. Number one, the man comes, Erev Shabbos, and Hillel's very, very busy. And he calls out, is there a guy called Hillel around here? What do you mean, you don't know my name? You know who I am? I'm the Nusli Biasrol. And not just that, it's a very busy time. What are you bothering me? And not just that, I have to come out to you? I should come out to you? I, the great Hillel, should come out to you? And not just that, what are you bothering me about? Are the Babylonians' heads flat? Why are the Orientals' eyes slanted? Why are you bothering me with klotzkashas? And in the final step, I'm afraid to ask the question. I have many questions to ask, but I'm afraid because maybe I'll get you angry. Didn't you see already who I am? The great Hillel who you can't get angry? Explains Marshall, every one of these steps were an attempt to test his humility because anger is based on your sense of self. If I'm a humble person, I'm a simple man, Okay, you asked me to come out. Okay, you asked the klutzkash. Listen, we all make mistakes. What's the difference? Okay, you asked me a few times. All right, what's the big deal? The minute there's arrogance in my heart, what do you mean? How dare you insult me? How dare you call me out to you? How dare you ask me such dumb questions? And more que- and, and after I've shown you how great I am, even now you think you're going to get me angry? You have no idea who I am. Every one of these steps was a test to humility because humility is the pivot point of all midos. If a person is truly humble, if a person has a very clear sense of self, who am I, what am I, I'm just a creation. Hashem made me, Hashem granted me many talents. I have strength and I have abilities, but all of it is talent alone from God. There's a sense of calm equanimity. A person's at peace with himself. There's no inner conflict. There's no sunburn on his ego. He doesn't always get insulted and get angry and constantly be triggered. And this Gemara is a very clear example of humility at its height. Yes, it's an example of a person not losing his temper, but the reason why he doesn't lose his temper is because none of these insults are barbs that penetrate me. And the Balgaiva can't help but get angry all the time. My ego is inflated. I have a sunburn on it, and I can't help but feel that no one treats me with the honor due to me. People are always insulting me, and they're bothering me, and they're triggering me, and leave me alone. And the only solution to that is to deflate that ego. And the smaller the ego gets, the smaller the sense of I becomes, the less things bother me, the more peace a person is, the more equanimity that they have. And when you look at an example like this, you see Hillel, the unov. Hillel, the humble person. And with that being said, if you'd like to focus on how to work on humility, it really is a very, very simple thing to do once you understand the Midah. You see, the first thing to recognize is that I am mortal, flesh and blood. And the Chavaz of Ovas explains to us that that is the single most humbling thought that a human being will ever have. I am not in control. I get headaches and toothaches, and body aches, pulled muscles, and more than anything, I will get older. I have a Musr exercise that I often use. If you'd like to really grow in humility, take a snapshot of yourself when you're a little child. I used to carry a picture of myself when I was eight, nine years old in my wallet. <clears throat> Why? Because you take that picture out and you say these words, I am the same person as that eight or nine-year-old, same human being. I'm a little bit older now, 
but I'm the same person. And Mitzvah Hashem, I'm going to be older. Mitzvah Hashem, older than that. Mitzvah Hashem, older than that. And if you'd like to know what I mean, go to an old age home and watch the 85-year-old man on that walker barely able to lift his legs. Watch him as he barely is able to pick up a spoon and then say to yourself the following words, Mitzvah Hashem, I will make it to 85. Imitza Hashem, maybe I'll make it to 88. But one thing I guarantee, I am not going to be as able and fit as I am now. And once I recognize that, I recognize I'm on this continuum. I started as a child, and then I made it to an adult, then to middle age, Imitza Hashem to older, Imitza Hashem to older, Imitza Hashem to older still, and then it's only a question of time until my body is in the grave. And that understanding demands humility. Because I understand, number one, I'm not in control. I didn't create myself. I don't run this world. I am on this continuum of aging, 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 and eventually no longer here. But number two, there's very little that I can control. The next time you get a toothache, next time you have a stomach ache, maybe you have the flu, or maybe you have COVID, say to yourself the following, I will it to be that this pain go away. I will it to be that the flu disappears. I will it to be that my pulled muscle suddenly is repaired. And when you say those words, you recognize the folly of it. I cannot control these things. Explains the Chovas of Ovas, I am a prisoner in this world. I am a prisoner to the conditions, hunger, tiredness, sleepiness. I am not in control. I'll try my best I'll put in my best effort, and I'll exert tremendous focus on serving Hashem, growing and accomplishing, but I am not in control. And watch what happens to the great mighty me when I lose one night's sleep. One night's sleep gone, and I'm cranky, I'm a mess. I'm a miserable human being. All I have to do is be a little jet lag, and the brilliant me is no longer so brilliant. As a matter of fact, I'm nasty and very, very rude, and I'm no longer the same human being. Watch what happens to the mighty me by the middle of a fast day. Try at 2 o'clock on Yom Kippur, 2 o'clock on Tisha B'av. What happens to the mighty me, cranky and tired and, and barely able to concentrate? What happened to me? Explains the Chovah's Volvos, you'll quickly see that the human being is a prisoner in this world. I'm not in charge, I'm not in control, and I am a prisoner. But if you really like to grow in humility... One of the exercises that you need to do is to keep your failures in front of you. I once had a fellow in my high school shear who was very, very talented, smart, good-looking, very, very good in learning, a very popular fellow. He had only one flaw. He never failed. He had never failed in his life. And that was his biggest flaw. Why? Because he had never failed, he held himself. But maybe held himself a tad too much. And that was ultimately his greatest flaw. Because if you've never failed, you don't have your failures in front of you. And one of the keys to gaining in humility is to keep your failures in front of you. We've all made mistakes. We've all said dumb things. We've all said words that, as they were coming out of my mouth, I said, oh my God, I can't believe I said that line to that person. And if you've been around life long enough, you've made mistakes. The problem is, if you don't learn to keep them in front of you, how quickly we forget them. 
the clever things I say, I review and review and review, but the dumb things I tend to forget. And if you want to grow in humility, you have to keep your failures in front of you. You have to remember the time when you made a blatant error, and you write it down, and remember it. I, the great, brilliant me, said something so stupid, gave someone advice that was so backwards, so damaging. What does that mean? That means the great, brilliant me isn't that great, isn't that brilliant, and explains in the Sulasharim that you have to be misboning, constantly think about Chalusha Seichel Anushi, the weakness of the human mind, and the tremendous amount of errors that we make. Does that mean I'm worthless? Does it mean I'm a nobody? No. But Ramosha Feinstein, as great as he was, recognized that there are limitations to his knowledge, things that he doesn't know, and he makes mistakes. The problem that we have is, if you don't keep your mistakes in front of you, you forget it. And you have a sense of, I'm brilliant, and I don't make mistakes, and I'm infallible. And the minute I do make a mistake, and you prove it to me, I'm insulted. How dare you? How dare you? You never, never make mistakes? And the answer is, you have to keep them ever in front of you. And if you'd like to learn a little humility, I have a very, very simple way of doing it. I used to do this on a regular basis. I was a high school rebbe. That means I taught Gemara, Halacha, Musr. But the fellows learn other things in the afternoon. You ever try listening in on an algebra class? Ninth grade. Now, I went to high school, and I passed the regions. And yet when I listened to a ninth grade algebra class, I don't have a clue. Geometry. Euclid's theory. I don't, I don't even know what they're talking about. Trigonometry, forget about it. What about history? Do I know who wrote the Magna Carta? Do I know whether Runnymede was a treaty or an egg or what it was? And worse than that, open any page of Shas and try this one on me. <clears throat> open any page of Shas and read the Tosas carefully. And I guarantee the first time you read the Tosas and the eighth time you read the Tosas, you're going to read a very different Tosa. But what's me? I'm brilliant. I'm so smart. Yeah. And why am I so backwards? The first time I read it, I read it backwards. If I knew the Gemara and I knew the Tosas already, likely if I haven't looked at it in a few years, I'm going to read it backwards from what it means. And what you quickly understand is that I'm not so brilliant. I'm not so worldly. I'm not so smart. And if you ever have a little trouble with that, go to Wikipedia and go look up any fact. But before you look it up, tell me what it's going to say beforehand. And explain to me who caused the Re- Russian Revolution, and why the French Revolution came after the American one. Explain to me the molecular structure of sugar, basic facts and basic understanding. And what you quickly see is, I'm not saying I'm an idiot, I'm not saying I'm stupid, but how much do I know? And when you start doing that, you recognize the human being is fallible. You recognize the human condition is very weak. And I think this Chazal is a tremendous eye-opening concept. Hillel was being tested in humility. And the Gemara says a person should always be humble like Hillel. What do you mean humility? It was anger management. Anger and humility are directly tied one to the other. And the center core of all Midos is humility. And because when that circle of self becomes inflated and bigger and bigger, there's a tremendous amount of inner conflict. I and I are in ever turmoil. And the reason why the arrogant person needs constant attention is because I'm inflating, I'm keeping it up, I'm huffing and puffing to keep that circle big, and I need your attention, I need your approval. Why? Because I know it's delusional, I know it's fake, and I need constant limelight, constant attention, 
because I have to constantly keep it up. But as a result of that, I'm in an inner turmoil. I can't see anyone else in my world because I'm so focused on I and keeping the I inflated that I can't see anyone else. And ultimately, I am the most unhappy person. Why am I unhappy? Number one, because I'm not accomplishing my purpose in this world. But number two, I'm in inner conflict. Everyone's constantly insulting me. I'm never getting the honor due to me. I'm always jealous. This one has a better car and a better house and a better wife and a better this. Why don't I? I deserve it. I should have it. I should be. And more than that, I'm never treated the way I should be. And anything that I do have, any pleasure that I have, person of my stature, my greatness, I should have far more. I should be given way more. I should enjoy way more. And I'm in a state of constant misery. If you would like to destroy your olam hazeh, if you would like to be a miserable human being, allow yourself to be arrogant. Because the more arrogant you are, the more miserable you are as a human being. I, but I'm totally self-centered. All I care about is me. Surely I'm the guy who's going to be happy, right? Dead wrong. And number one, you're doing the opposite of what your creator wants you to do. But because you're in that state of ever needing to keep inflated, you're in an inner conflict, you're always being insulted, you never can enjoy this world, you can't appreciate anything, certainly not other people, and you're needy, needy, needy all day long for everyone else's approval, and you're in a state of misery. If you let the air out of that balloon, you get smaller and smaller. You recognize, I have talents, I have strengths, given to me by Hashem. And as I become smaller and smaller, I learn to enjoy things. First of all, I have a sense of inner peace. I don't need constant approval. I don't need other people to look at me. Listen, who am I anyway? What do I need? Their approval. I'm not so chashiv. I'm not so important. I can ride the back of the plane. It's not. I don't need the front row. I'm okay. It's fine. I, I don't have the fanciest house. I don't have the nicest car. My wife is not the prettiest one in the world. What is it? I'm a simple guy. I don't need much. My life is simple. And at the core of my essence, I'm happy. I'm a happy, satisfied human being. If you'd like to enjoy this world, forget the world to come. If you want to enjoy this world, you begin shrinking that sense of self. You make it smaller and smaller, and the smaller it becomes, the happier you become. How do you make it smaller? And the first thing to recognize is, I'm not the master of my destiny. I began as a young child. I was then a teenager, then an adult, then older, and I am on this continuum. I cannot control it. I cannot stop time, and I will get older. I'm going to make it to my 80s. I hope so. I sure do hope so. It's certainly not in my control, but I hope so. And when I'm 80, and if I make it to 85, I will not be as strong, powerful, young as I was when I was 18. And But more than that, I am a prisoner in this world. I cannot con- control the conditions. Famine or hunger, weakness or poverty or tiredness or ail- ailments or sicknesses or pains. I do not control my destiny. Hashem is in charge. I'm on this continuum. I don't control my destiny. I'm a prisoner in this world. But more than anything, as the Hashem explains to us, constantly keep your failures in front of you. What do you mean, my failures? I'm going to feel like a nobody or nothing. And not with a healthy sense of self, you won't. I have a healthy sense that Hashem gifted me with talents, with strengths, with abilities, and yet I've made mistakes. I've failed. I blew it. I made really dumb choices. I made wrong choices. And I've said foolish things. And I've made mistakes. And I keep them in front of me. Why do I keep them in front of me? Because I want to be miserable? No, the opposite. 
I keep them in front of me because I want to be realistic. I want to remember that I am a frail human being. I have some wisdom granted me by Hashem, some understanding gifted to me by my Creator, but I make mistakes all the time. There's far more that I don't know than I do know, and with that I have an open sense of self. I'm willing to learn, I'm able to learn, I'm able to be happy, I'm able to enjoy this thing called life. The gifts that I'm given, I enjoy. It's wonderful. It's magnificent. I open my eyes and I see the sun and I see the moon. I see what's out there and it's beautiful and I enjoy it because more than anything, there's an inner sense of self. And I'd like to close this session with one observation. At the final tail end, the man says, Are you the man they call Hillel? Nasi Yisrael? Yes, I am. If so, there should be no more like you. Why not? Because of you, I lost 400 zuz. I lost the bet. Says Hillel, the words, Kedaihu Hillel. It's worthy to have a Hillel. You should lose 400 zuz and another 400 zuz, and Hillel should not lose his temper. Now, that does not sound very humble. That sounds a little bit boastful. <clears throat> it's Kedaihu to have a Hillel. You should lose that much money. But as we said before, that's exactly what Chazal is teaching us. <clears throat> Humility is not a sense of worthlessness. Humility is not a sense of, I can't accomplish. A person has to open his eyes in the morning and say, I am the center of the universe. Hashem would have made the whole world for me and me alone. So I'm arrogant? Not at all. Talent unknown from God. I'm Joe the crane operator. Put into this mighty crane called a human being. And what this human being can do is incredible. With my wisdom, my understanding, my mouth, my arms, my legs, I was gifted tremendous things. So I'm, I'm, I'm important, I'm boastful, I'm pompous? Not at all. I'm that little guy inside, recognizing my talents, recognizing my strengths, recognizing my position, and at the same time recognize that it's all a gift from Hashem, is that very difficult dichotomy of understanding my capacity and yet remaining humble. When a person does that, they accomplish, they grow. There's an inner sense of peace, an inner sense of harmony. They accomplish, they do, and they enjoy greatly their existence in this world.